Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a very big show today, so let's not mess around. Let's get right at it. Later on in the show, best-selling author Robert Harris joins me to talk about his new novel, Act of Oblivion. It's a historical novel set in 1660s England and Puritan New England, but has many timely lessons for today. We'll tell you why just a little bit later on. First, though, let's meet Matt Cahill. He has a private practice and is a member of the College of Registered Psychotherapists of Ontario, and he's a writer whose debut novel, The Society of Experience, was picked up as a must-read by Harper's Bazaar magazine. His short stories have been widely published, and his essay, On Madness Within Imagination, was selected for Best Canadian Essays in 2017. His new book, Radioland, is a mesmerizing literary thriller where music, fame, and magic wind together in an eerie mystery. In the book, there are whispers about murders on the scene in the city, from bartenders, hairdressers, and others who trade in rumors. When the bodies are found, they are altered in very disturbing ways. Matt Cahill joined me to talk about Radioland via Zoom. Was it the characters that created the complexity here? Because we have uh, two main characters. There's Chris, who's a musician uh, whose kind of life has fallen apart. He got a certain amount of fame and then uh, things fell away for him. And then there's Jill, who is uh, uh, looking for a connection. So they're, they're both layered characters. Was it the creation of those characters and those complex characters that forced this into becoming something perhaps bigger than you might have originally planned? Yes. And, and I'd like to kind of focus on a word that you use, which is connection. I, I think mm. it's a big theme in the book. And, uh, you know, it, it muses on this idea of, you know, how can you live in a city with millions of people and yet not really kind of feel like there's anyone you can talk to or, or connect with, or for the matter, come from a, a family and, and not find connection in that, right? So Chris and Jill are both in their own separate ways uh, feeling lost and, and looking to reach out and connect, and they do so in a very sort of coincidental way. You are a registered psychotherapist. I'm guessing that at least some of what you've just said is an offshoot of the work that you do uh, when you're not writing books. Yeah, um, it's I'm very much tuned into the inner workings of people, which obviously comes to the territory of my day job. Mm -hmm. And I've played with sort of how to write about states of mental health in, in a fictional uh, sort of format in a way that isn't too nebulous or isn't too internalized. Uh, and, and so working it into a sort of psychological thriller was a way to sort of stay close to these things which mean a lot to me, but also provide a, a means for the reader to stick with it. And, and along, along the way, sort of perhaps reflect on their own relationship with people around them. I suppose you have to be very careful when you're writing about mental illness, never to be condescending, never to uh, oversimplify uh, the just the very subject matter itself uh, is so complex that you don't want to, I don't know, dumb it down uh, for the book. It has to be presented in the richness in which it deserves. And that can be very difficult. It, it, exactly. I 
stay away from terminology. I stay away from diagnostic language because that's not how we live our lives. Mm -hmm. You can have something uh, which has a diagnostic term, but that does not define you, right? You are still a person. And, you know, my, my mantra is, you know, life is complex and people are messy, no matter how healthy or not right and 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 i think i I like to sort of portray characters who are nuanced they're they're not not everything they do is likable Mm -hmm. and that's quite frankly realistic and you draw on your your what you call your day job as a as a uh, psychotherapist uh, on this, but I suppose you have to be extraordinarily careful that there is no relationship to the actual patients or anything like that. You have to completely wipe that slate clean and and make sure that everything is completely fictionalized. Absolutely, that yeah. is uh, the most important thing. Um, that would be a among other things, a betrayal of trust. And so, yes, it's, uh, you know, obviously uh, it's uh, not using any of the sort of uh, specific uh, sort of uh, events that I, uh, uh, you know, experience in my client work. This took five years to write, from what I understand. You have a great blog on your website uh, that I've been following along. And from what I understand, this took five years to write. How do you stay interested how do you stay invested in something over that amount of time um i'm i'm a workhorse uh, and i (laughs) from from when i started to take writing seriously i think the the guiding philosophy and perhaps it's because i i uh grew up in a sort of you know lower middle class to working class environment was that you get stuff done by you know, sitting your butt down and getting to work. You're listening to Matt Cahill on The Richard Krause Show. His new novel, Radioland, is available wherever you buy fine books. I don't have the benefit of uh, being able to write whenever I want. I have to pay bills. I have to pay rent. Uh, And so, you know, I end up writing on weekends. Uh, I end up writing sometimes in in evenings in, in snatches of time that I grab whenever I can. And there's a quote that I took from your blog, and it says, part of me just wants to walk away from it. How do you keep going back? It's hard. Writing is hard. You've got a very demanding day job. Uh, how do you how do you go back? How do what makes you what makes you not walk away from it? Well, especially when you're writing, I, I keep telling myself, why did I write an ambitious book? <laughs> uh, you know, why can't it just be sword and sorcery and, and right. just, you know, uh, it, not that, you know, that is necessarily simple either. Um, my passion for the characters, my, my passion for what it is in terms of themes, et cetera, that I'm trying to convey, uh, I owe it. I owe it to the story that I'm trying to tell. And I'm, I, I owe it to the complexity that I'm trying to convey to the reader. Let's talk about some of those themes. Uh, one, I think, is the uh, a look at fame and the ridiculous nature of fame, which is something mm-hmm. that I think we learned through Chris. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and and what your take away from the idea of being famous is sure it it is in a it, it i think you know i like to say you know fame is for my enemy um because <laughs> it, it 
if fame kind of can very quickly two-dimensionalize us, right? Mm -hmm. Because people, when you have your, your photograph in the paper, and I'm talking about like, not necessarily about whatever, you know, publicity I've, I've been lucky enough to enjoy, but when you're looking at, um, you know, uh, popular uh, musicians, actors, you know, when people around you get this idea about you that is independent of reality, right? People just end up getting this, oh, that's the guy from so-and-so and and Mm. they do this. And so suddenly people, quote unquote, know you and start developing ideas about you, which may just take their own sort of path. And meanwhile, you're kind of like, I'm nothing like that. I'm not this person you think I am. And so we we see Chris in, in one chapter, uh, you know, at a Tim Hortons, having to kind of work out why this person is staring at him right. and just going through the the motions of that. So let's talk about uh, the other themes here. Uh, we're looking at trauma. There's a, a great deal of talk of trauma in the book and how trauma can be passed. I think from person to person, generation to generation, uh, the toxicity of trauma. I suppose. Well, it's you know, it, it's often there is a legacy with trauma it, mm-hmm. it's and that's why in my clinical work i very often uh avoid pointing fingers of blame uh to you know parents or, or guardians or, or people who might have uh abused people because you know nine times out of ten those people themselves were abused and and, and so it, it's cyclical there's a legacy at at play so we have to be very careful not to necessarily get caught up in finding a villain, but, you know, making room for those who need the space to sort out what happened to them. Because very often victims of trauma don't even really uh, conceive of what has actually happened to them as being bad until perhaps well into their their 20s, 30s or, or further. Well, is this what you mean uh, when you suggest that when we start unearthing things about ourselves and our lives, that there is a certain amount of danger involved in that uh, because you are uncovering things that perhaps have never really occurred to you and that can be life-changing. I I like this question a lot because it has to do with the point about trauma, but also about art making, right? Mm. There's something like, Art making is messy and, and we have to pull our guts out and, and pulling our guts out doesn't necessarily mean that we understand what we're looking at. And, and so it can be messy. We can be working with material that is so primordial and, and so sort of unrecognizable that it can be triggering for the artist just to get in the pit, right? And and start working with that material. And that's why, you know, when, when you have musicians who are writing very heartfelt uh, lyrics uh, depicting really terrible circumstances, you know, for them to get on stage every night and, and go to that place, it, I, I, really, I really respect the sort of resilience that they need in order to pull that off. That was Matt Cahill, author of the interesting new novel, Radioland, which is available now wherever you buy fine books. 
Robert Harris. He's the best-selling author of Fatherland, The Ghost Rider, Munich, and Conclave. His new novel is a spellbinding historical book that brilliantly imagines one of the greatest manhunts in history. That's the search for two Englishmen involved in the killing of King Charles I and the relentless foe on their tail. It's an epic journey into the wilds of 17th century New England, and it's a chase like no other. Robert Harris joined me via Zoom from his home in England. You were a very successful political journalist before becoming a novelist. What did you bring from the career in journalism uh, to writing the historical novels that you write today? Um, I suppose uh, I brought curiosity. Um, I I follow a story. I'm interested in characters. Um, I like to discover things and then I like to convey them to a reader. I'm quite interested in public events and political currents. Um, and I'm not afraid to pick up the phone or get on the internet and get in touch with people and find things out. I mean, I found uh, an unpublished thesis written 50 years ago. I found a track down the author's widow, um, you know, one of the regicides who features in the novel. So, you know, that I think being a journalist was, was a good training for me. The actual practice of writing is it different now? As a journalist, you're under heavy deadlines. Every day you have to pump out a story. Now you have more time to finesse. Uh, do you prefer the immediate gut reaction of journalism to the more long-form, long-term style of writing a book? I wasn't a very good news journalist, to be honest <laughs> with you. I, I mean, I was a political editor of The Observer for a couple of years in London, but I wasn't. No, even my best friends wouldn't say I was a brilliant scoop merchant. <laughs> I was always better at the longer term piece. The longer, the better, really. Would you want to be a political editor now? The political landscape has changed so much uh, since you were actually doing it. Would it be an exciting time to do it or an exhausting time to do it? I think it's a pretty de depressing time, to be absolutely honest with you. Um, I think that the caliber of the people is boring. Um, I mean, when I was doing it, you know, I, I mean, there were big figures, you mm -hmm. know, Thatcher, Healy, Roy Jenkins. I mean, there were sort of serious figures. The ideas seemed more interesting. Parliament mattered more, debate mattered more, and we had the illusion, at least, that you could change people's mind by argument. Now, I don't think that you feel that. You think everyone is in their own silo, in their own trench, and they're not likely to move from it. So I'm, I'm pleased to be out of it and to, to write novels instead. Yeah, there's no nuance anymore. There's no gray areas anymore. It's like sports teams. Everyone's on one side or the other, and there's a, a huge gap between them. Yeah, I think that that's right. And uh, um, it makes you doubt, really, the, the value of rational argument. And once you begin to doubt that in a democracy, uh, then you're in trouble. Let's talk about uh, and the act of oblivion. I think that one of the lessons uh, that we take away from this is that we can't escape the past. The past completely informs the present and the future. Uh, is that one of the things in your head as you approach writing a novel of historical matter? Not especially. I mean, what what happens? What happened with this is I saw a tweet. I think it was referred to the to the greatest manhunt of the 17th century, and I thought that sounded a very interesting concept. And I 
followed it up, and it was about the hunt for everyone who'd signed, all the men who'd signed Charles I's death warrant or had been judges at his trial, dozens of men who were hunted down in 1660 and the years that followed. You're listening to best-selling author Robert Harris on The Richard Krauss Show. His novel, Act of Oblivion, is available now wherever you buy fine books. And I thought, well, that's just a great story. And I found, I invented the man on the tail of all these guys and and I focused on two real life figures and really I saw it as a great chase story and a kind of procedural um, about a manhunt in the 17th century. Of course, the background of the English Civil War, um, the the execution of Charles I, the return of Charles II, to to have published it in the month when Charles III comes to the throne and so much of the language and the pageantry that we've witnessed is rooted in the 17th century. All the stuff we had to listen to about the Church of Scotland and uh, so on, you know, all this comes from that era when the kind of modern British state began to be formed. So to my surprise, of course, I found that I have written a novel that's quite contemporary and is also about a very divided country, deeply divided country, and, and the way that it really exported its revolution to America uh, and the way in which America um, reflects those divisions to this day, actually, in particular, the strong religious element from the Puritans of the Cromwell's time, who are still pretty dominant in American politics, now known as the, as the radical Christian right. Yeah, the evangelicals that seem to have what feels to me like an outsized voice in American politics, considering uh, that they are not the vast majority of people, but they do seem to be tastemakers in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, that's it. You know, the, the, the uh, you know the novel. Most of the novel takes place against uh, takes place in New England between 1660 and 1675. And this is the beginnings of really modern America. Harvard College exists. Uh, New Amsterdam is taken by the English and renamed New York. Um, They're in New Haven, where of course Yale was about to be founded. And uh, these small settlements, only 30,000 British settlers over there, but this is the DNA of America forming. And um, you see it, to this day, I, I remember when I was researching one of my novels, The Ghost, I went to Martha's Vineyard. I was stunned to find that there were still towns there that were dry, where you couldn't get a drink. Um, uh, the extraordinary difficulties, if you're age 20, of having a drink in America, even though you can buy any number of assault weapons, is crazy. Um, and the overturning of Roe v. Wade and uh, the importation of other people's strict religious views into matters of personal freedom all this has you can really trace the puritan english 8th 17th century tradition here when you are writing a book like this how do you balance the historical aspects of telling the story with the need to engage the reader and keep their attention throughout the history is fascinating but you do create characters this isn't we're not reading a history book as such where's the balance for you well, I think my first duty, obviously, as a novelist is to entertain and to uh, to give the reader a story and characters they identify with and to make them feel that they're in that time and they believe what they are reading. That's the first 
um, criterion, but the um, part of that uh, is to know the background, uh, convince myself that I know what I'm talking about, and if I can convince myself, I can convince the reader. I don't want to overlabor the research, but I want people to feel that yeah, they're getting a fair slice of 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 this extraordinary event. Uh, which was the failure of the English Republic. Astonishing to think that England was a republic for 11 years in, this, in the 17th century. It failed, the king returned, there was this manhunt, uh, and these two guys, father-in-law, son-in-law, were pursued across New England, and that meant a lot of research. It meant researching the people on their tail, but it also meant researching this, these two colonels, Wally and Goff, who started off in Cambridge, Massachusetts, fled to Connecticut, uh, and ended up right in the farthest point of the English colonies, still trying to hide from these people on their tail. And that meant a lot of research as to what New England was like at that time, to, to make it feel real to the reader, but I hope not to slow up the story. When we pick up a book like Act of Oblivion, uh, you know, Brexit has just happened. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but uh, there seem to be so many uh, parallels to today that it, it feels astonishing to me that you didn't set out to write a book that, that coincided with all of this. But of course, you can't know. Uh, it's in the zeitgeist, I guess. It's in the air. I, I, I'm not sure exactly how it works, but it, it just feels like we're reading something uh, you know, fairly contemporary, even though, given the events of today, even though it takes place 400 years ago. Yeah, I think what you do is, you know, I read this line about this great manhunt, which intrigued me. I've always been interested in the English Civil War. I saw the novel as a way not only of writing about this chase across an, an, an America that's still start, just starting to be formed, but also as a way of writing about the civil war in England, which is very complex. And, uh, and I think the truth of the matter is that, you know, you, you, you can write about, you can write a historical novel about absolutely anything. So why do you choose particular things? Why do they call out to you? And it's subconscious, actually. I don't consciously think, oh, here I can write something about a divided country, which will be a bit like Brexit, or this will be a, a bit about what Trump's America is like and where it came from. It just is there, you know, and it's the reason why I think it appeals to one without, as a novelist, well, even really thinking about it. It's a cliche to say, but I think all historical novels are contemporary novels. Mm. Um, but, you know, Shakespeare, the history plays that he wrote, the Roman plays, they were stories that had some relevance to his own time and uh, it's not often if you're, you're you're trying to create a story and you want to comment on politics it's better not to do it directly to write a novel about a Liz Truss kind of character God help, God help us all uh, but instead uh, to find something in the past even inadvertently actually well this book is about the death of a monarch uh, of course, I'm talking to you from Canada, uh, part of the Commonwealth. Queen Elizabeth has just passed away. I grew up with her portrait in every classroom that I ever attended. Uh, she's on the money. She is on our stamps. I mean, it just, to me, feels like the only constant really <laughs> in my life has been uh, this one woman who gave herself over to duty completely. 
uh, for 70 years. It's an extraordinary achievement, an extraordinary person. Uh, what do you see now as the future of the monarchy now that she is gone? Because I'm not entirely hopeful. I, I've come to realize that my love of the monarchy was a love of Queen Elizabeth and not necessarily much beyond that. Well, I can't speak for Canada, obviously. I, I mean, I completely understand if Canada, Australia, New Zealand, that, you know, they're so far away, they've had their own traditions, it must seem very anachronistic to still have the English or the British royal family. Uh, here, I think that Charles has made a good start. Um, and I think that there is one of the things that's come out, happened in the last five years, six, seven years, especially with the Trump phenomenon in America, is that you see the great value of separating the state, something that embodies the state that everyone can unite around. Families have the problems, you may, may not like them very much, but there it is, that's the state, that's there. And then there's the political controversy. You're listening to author Robert Harris on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Act of Oblivion, is available now wherever fine books are sold. And I think that no one in their right mind would prefer to live uh, in a system where you can elect a Donald Trump as your head of state, as opposed to having Queen Elizabeth or King Charles. I think it's just a healthier kind of setup. And the great Marxist historian, British Marxist historian, Eric Hobsbawm, who I met just before his death, I the last conversation I ever had with him, he said the best countries to live in in the world, in his view, were constitutional monarchies because they offered the best guarantee of freedom. Mm. An interesting thing for a Marxist to say. And, uh, and you know, in my old age, I've come to think he's probably right. So, I hope uh, that Canada and Australia and everyone might keep the British royal family. I quite understand if they don't. But if you don't, it means you're going to have an elected head of state or some kind of politician. And I'm not sure that, especially in these what we started off talking about, these divided days, this is a good thing, actually. The outpouring of affection for Queen Elizabeth that happened here was remarkable. And I think that uh, it, it has made people think about the importance of that, uh, of the monarchy, of the royal family in our lives in a way that perhaps we just need a reminding. You know, this is a world of vast change and uncertainty and, 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 and difficulty. Um, and the royal family represents a kind of continuity. It's a reminder uh, of a historical past and a kind of, it's a, like a sort of ladder back into history and a reminder that, you know, that we are linked to previous generations. Um, and I think that that is something probably we, we need to, we will cleave to more now than we would have done, say, 10, 20 years ago. So I think that the monarchy, in a funny way, you know, we live, the other thing is we live in an irrational age. We live in an age of superstition, conspiracy theories, all kinds of madnesses. And actually suddenly having hereditary um, heads of state doesn't seem that irrational after all, you know, given that everything else seems completely irrational. I may have caught you on uh, this period 
of your year where you're not working on a book. You like to work on books from the 15th of January and finish it on the 15th of June. Uh, were you being uh, clever <laughs> and, and when you said that, or is that how it works? I was tempting fate, I think, probably. <laughs> Hubristic is what I was being. Um, as you say, I'm, I'm an old journalist, and uh, the great value of journalism uh, print journalism is you have to fill a page, you have to section. I was a columnist, you had to fill that space. And it didn't matter if you were feeling tired, hungover, you had no ideas, you had to do it. And uh, that's very good training because the adrenaline of, of the fear, if you like, of having to fill the space mm. forces you to look into yourself and find something. And so I like to set myself a strict kind of punishing timetable of six months to write a book uh, I've undertaken to deliver it and uh, I have to write so many words a day and the process of doing that uh, I've found helps me see things a bit better and also forces me to write because there's nothing you know as your listeners will know there's nothing you're more easier to do than put off writing be it an email or a thank you letter yep. uh, so i like to start um, on the 15th of january with a title with knowing more or less what i'm going to do and i like to finish it in mid-june and then the book comes out in september or october i can't always manage it but when i can that's the schedule i i prefer mr harris thank you so much uh for spending some time with me this afternoon what a pleasure to speak to you thanks very much been a, a joy talking to you thank you you've been listening to best-selling author robert harris on the richard krauss show find his book act of oblivion a terrific piece of historical fiction in fine bookstores everywhere the word legend gets kicked around a lot but in this case it really fits Stan Lee made an indelible mark on popular culture by co-creating some of the most popular characters in comic book history. Without him, there'd be no superheroes like Spider-Man, the X-Men, Iron Man, Thor, the Hulk, Black Panther, and the list goes on and on. He is a legend, and I got the chance to speak with him on the phone a couple of years before he passed away in 2018. He was in fine form, and it's a really fun interview, and I really just wanted to share it with you again. Here's Stan Lee on the phone from Avengers headquarters. Do you look at comic books and superheroes as being the modern equivalent of fairy tales? Good versus evil, clear morality, all that kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. Especially the fact, you know, in fairy tales, most of them have people or objects, people mostly, that are bigger than life. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have giants, you have wizards, you have witches, you have all sorts of things that are, as I say, bigger than life, and that if they were a movie, they'd require special effects. So to me, comic books are like fairy tales for older readers, because they have all the elements that fairy tales had, all the elements of fantasy, but they're written for older readers, who, and they're written in such a way that everything seems plausible and possible. Do you think that we, the world, needs superheroes now more than ever, even maybe when you first started writing about them? Well, I think the world needs something to make it a little more peaceful and a little more thoughtful of others. And if superheroes help to do that, I'm very happy. I know the world needs entertainment very badly. People need 
to have things that they enjoy, pleasant things. And so many people seem to love comic books and the movies that are based on comics. And I think that's a good thing. You know, I told people that I was going to be speaking with you, and so many people asked me to say thank you to you, to thank you for creating characters that spoke to them, to thank you for giving them an interest in reading. I heard that over and over and over. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Now, when it's all said and done, what do you think the legacy is? Is it the characters? Is it that you got kids reading? What do you think it will be? Oh, I would just hope it's the fact that maybe I brought some enjoyment to people if they enjoyed reading my stories. I, I didn't go out of my way to be an instructor. I mean, the business about kids reading is interesting, though, because when I started writing the comics, I made up my mind that I would use an adult vocabulary and... I figured the young children would know what the words mean by the use in the sentence, or if they had to go to a dictionary and look up a word, that's not the worst thing in the world that could happen. Because when I got into comics, they was I felt they were so badly written, it's as though they were written for people who were illiterate. Mm -hmm. And that bothered me. I didn't want to be part of that. So I did try to use the kind of language and dialogue that would um, be suitable for older people, but use it in such a way that youngsters could understand. Now, you started writing obituaries and press releases and things like that. What advice, then, would you give to writers, aspiring writers today? Oh, I'm not good at that. I see. I was lucky. But um, I, again, I would try if you're an aspiring writer. The thing to do, of course, is write. If you can write yourself a book and send it to a publisher and hope he or she will like it, that's wonderful. But if you can't do a whole book or something of that sort, try to get a job somewhere where writing is important. If you could get to a job at a publishing house where maybe you become a reader or a critic or something of that sort and little by little get into doing your own writing. You're listening to the comic book legend Stan Lee on The Richard Krause Show. You've got to just look around. Me, I found somebody actually came to me from a hospital that needed a... Um, a publicity writer, which always surprised me. I thought, well, what is the publicity writer supposed to do? Tell people to get sick so they'll go to the hospital? But we, um, it was a job, and I wrote their publicity releases. And then I worked for, an, I got a job at a news service writing obituaries. And, you know, if you're somebody famous, even if you're alive, your obituary is already written because they want to have it available when you die right away. So I was writing obituaries of people who were still alive, which got to be a little bit depressing. But it was a living, and I got experience in writing. So all I could say is, if someone wants to be a writer, just try to get jobs in areas where there's a lot of writing done. Who would play you in the film that they make of your life? Well, let's see, Clark Gable and Errol Flynn are dead now. It would be pretty tough. <laughs> <laughs> the names of your characters, I mean, obviously, you know, for the last 
decades. For decades, we've been we've grown up with Bruce Banner and Peter Parker and things. How did you come up with the names? Was and I've just noticed that alliteration seems important to you. In, Very important, and in, in it's, why be, so? it's because I have a bad memory, <laughs> and if I could remember what one of the names was like it, it was spider-man if i could remember his first name was peter then i knew his second name began with a p and it was easier for me to think of it and that's really the only reason i have a terrible memory for names and by putting the first and second letter making them the same i had a clue if i thought of one name i had a clue to what the na next name was <laughs> would you consider yourself a, a superhero expert then or are you someone who just lets your imagination run wild and what you come up with is what you come up with? Oh, no, I'm not an expert of any sort. I, I, I really try to think of stories that I myself would like to read. I try to think of characters that I myself would be interested in. And I think to myself that I'm not that unusual. There must be a lot of people who have the same tastes that I do. So if I just write to please myself, hopefully I'm pleasing a lot of other people who, who enjoy the same things. And that's, I, I, in other words, I never try to write for a certain segment of the readership. I write for myself, and I hope that I'm not that unusual. If I like it, other people will like it. I think that might be the advice for the aspiring writers right there. Well, maybe. <laughs> and of all the characters that you've created, is it possible to say that you have a favorite? Well, people expect me to, so I always say Spider-Man, because yeah. that's what they expect. But I'm really not good at favorites. I, I really love them all. There's been this resurgence with them. Uh, could you ever, in your wildest imagination, think that today, in 2016 that we would still be talking about Spider-Man, that we'd still be talking about the Hulk, we'd still be talking about all these characters. Is that Could that have been in your imagination at all when you first started working in comic books? Not at all. I, in the beginning, when I was writing these things, I was just hoping that somebody would buy them so that I could keep my job and be able to pay the rent. That was the late, great Stan Lee. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I did. Big thanks goes out to my guest today, Matt Cahill. Find his book, Radio Land, wherever fine books are sold. Ditto goes for Robert Harris and his book, Act of Oblivion. Of course, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah.